Congress Two Beers In. Uh, I am Josh Heater, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. I'm with my colleagues Matt Glossman How you doing? and Mark Harkins. Good afternoon. Uh, and we are going to talk about some stuff uh, that's happened <laughs> since we've last <laughs> podcasted. Um, stuff includes like opening up the government. Uh, they came to a CR deal. Uh, there was no wall included. In fact, this had some interesting political dynamics that uh, aren't all that common, even for shutdowns in many cases. Um, so what did you guys take away from the shutdown and the reopening of the government? Experience matters. Okay. Um, you saw a seasoned politician in Nancy Pelosi, uh, now Speaker of the House of Representatives, negotiating in a sense, or at least uh, banting back and forth with President Trump, who has no experience um, of having a, as a politician before his last two years, and even those two years he was somewhat sheltered because he had Republican majorities on both sides. And Pelosi basically schooled him in, you can say you want to do whatever you want, but I actually control the cards. And I understand how people are going to review this, especially since you called it the Trump t- uh, shutdown beforehand. Yeah. I think that was a, it was a really good example of just, it was nice to see a house exert its authority. Right. <laughs> Again, it's like, oh my God, I forgot this existed a little bit. Um, just because even when the house wanted to exert its authority, there were so many fractures within the recent majorities that they weren't able to push back even on the Senate to a significant degree, whether that was the tax bill or the ACA bill or opening up government or whatever it may be. Um, in many cases, they just didn't have the votes. Um, and this is one of those examples where the house kind of forcefully pushed back on the president and ended up winning, uh, which is what you would kind of expect in many Standoffs between the two institutions. The two yeah, branches. I thought I thought Pelosi was masterful, and I thought that this is in you know whatever you say about what happened in the shutdown, and I do think she schooled him. I mean, she took very careful. I mean, this was never going to be popular. They were trying to get something in that wasn't there. She was always going to have the basic leverage on her side, but she used it well, managed her caucus well. I thought she took one risk, which was blowing up the State of the Union. Uh, she didn't get really any gruff publicly from her caucus for making that move, and it worked out in her favor. But I did think it was risky. But I do think Trump has done himself a terrible disservice now because one thing this has done is I think it shut down all of this kind of hemming and hawing from some Democrats about whether Pelosi should have been Speaker. I think it's self-evident now to all of them that she's the leader they need, and I think it's going to serve them pretty well going forward. I think the, the other thing that happened in this shutdown is I think you start to see uh, Trump's weakness on display more now that he doesn't have a unified Republican Congress to kind of hide uh, to, to give him to give him protection. And I thought McConnell uh, played this rather beautifully from his own position too. He managed to somehow get out of the way of this piano falling out the window and landed directly on Trump. If you look at the polls, Trump owned the shutdown, and the GOP Congress really didn't. Um, they're tied to him in a lot of ways, and they can't really help themselves. Uh, but they could have made a lot worse for themselves. And his moves to kind of uh, say, we're not doing anything in the Senate until you get a deal, uh, meant that they didn't have to take votes against him, mm-hmm. uh, and they could also pin this thing directly on him. Yep. And once a deal was reached, they could vote for it. So I thought Trump did poorly. I thought congressional leaders on both sides did about as well as they could have yep. uh, politically. And the end result is really, I think, basically embarrassing for Trump. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to speak to both of your points, so McConnell did a lot of more than just distancing and allowing the president to take the lead. I mean, he definitely did that. He's playing defense to a significant degree. But McConnell would not even be seen yeah. with the president of the United States. Right. Like, they're having Rose Garden press conferences with the two House leaders next to him, Scalise and McCarthy, and McConnell's in an SUV back to the Capitol. Yeah. Um, I mean, he totally got out of the way, which I thought was, <clears throat> again, shielding him and his members from the 
utter catastrophe that was unfolding uh, the, the partial government shutdown. But I think this I think that's what everybody kind of wanted in their own selfish ways. Some people mistakenly, some people smartly, is that Trump loves these larger than life interpersonal confrontations. Right. Uh, he got that. McConnell got to get out of the way, and Pelosi got to go one on one with a politician that she thinks she can defeat, uh, especially when she has the advantage coming in. Yeah. And so it kind of led to kind of a natural place where. You know, the two smarter politicians in the room. More experienced. Uh, I'll say smarter. Right. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I mean. I mean more experienced. I just, um, you know, I don't think like, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's like Subtle distinction. It's like, you know what we'll do? We'll, you know, let me just uh, send my uh, inexperienced son-in-law in and he'll salvage this deal. Right. It's not really and, the and way that's, to go. And actually, that seems to be the plan now. Well, here's the, so with Pelosi, she made this look like really, really easy, which is good because it was. Right, opposing an unpopular president for an unpopular policy with an unpopular shutdown is not the biggest lift that a congressional <laughs> leader should have to do. Right, this should be a cakewalk, and she made it look like that. Um, I think it, I don't know that it's really like a huge test of her leadership, but the fact that you know everything that everybody expected when you said she is the most experienced legislator in the House, the most experienced legislative leader in the House, like that was on full display. Um, there are bigger tests to come, uh, for sure. Uh, this upcoming um, CR, the upcoming day to uh, shutter the government again mm-hmm. um, on the 15th is another one of those. But, um, yeah, it was it was kind of a, just a masterful display of, like, nope, we're sticking firm, like, keeping the caucus together. And it's largely overshadowed some of the other kind of kerfuffles that have been going on within her own caucus. Right. Yeah. Um, where she's losing votes on the motions to recommit, which are kind of procedural stuff that you don't normally see majorities lose on. Right. And, um, and, and it was the last vote before they reached the deal, right? The House and the Senate both voted on something. In the House, if I remember correctly, there were eight or ten Democrats who yep. voted against, and there were five Republicans who voted against. So in the House, basically, people stayed on their teams. Yep. In the Senate, it got really interesting on that last vote. Yeah. When, right? McConnell did that show vote. Yeah, McConnell, McConnell, I think, was at the point where he was, you know, just a day or so away from losing his caucus, or having to lead his caucus to a position where they were going to have to literally take Trump on. And I, in essence, I think that's what happened last Thursday. He, he set up those two side-by-side votes basically to show Trump that this is collapsing. Yep. Uh, the reporting says afterwards he went to Trump and said, you know, we're going to have 75 votes against you if you don't cut an exit deal right now. And so that's ultimately how these things fall apart, typically. Uh, it's very rare to see a president hold out and fight to the bitter end. This is no different, obviously different scale, but when the Republican leaders went to Nixon and said, you got to resign, buddy, we don't have the votes. Right. Same story. Well, that, that and shutting down, or not shutting down, but... Ground stopping three major airports in the Northeast, I think, also absolutely um, entered into. And, the, I, the and I think you know, going forward, um, both in the short term for the potential shutdown on February fifteenth, but also for future shutdowns, I think we've learned a lot now by having an extended shutdown. And one of the things we've learned, and I think that street level bureaucrats in the executive branch have learned, is that they have a lot of leverage in these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear to me we'll ever have a shutdown that goes this long again because people like air traffic controllers uh, realize that at the choke points they can have an influence on the outcomes of these things. The government does a lot of stuff. Like, yeah, absolutely. As, as, as it turns out, right? Yeah, as it turns out. I mean, air traffic controllers, TSA agents, and that's just the part of the travel right, right. apparatus. Right. Um, that's not including like ag loans that that didn't go out. That does not include like funds. Right. Uh, like, right, the urban development stuff, which goes direct, directly to, like, disaster relief type things, right? Mm-hmm. All of that 
that stuff was shuttered. SEC couldn't couldn't roll out new. IRS was having problems because they couldn't Mm -hmm. verify incomes for people to get mortgages. I mean, it it was an utter disaster. Um, That I think everything was kind of coming to the head. The air traffic controllers were sort of the thing that was the tipping point. But if it shut her down for much longer, I don't know what it would have. It would have gotten very very bad very very quickly. And that's the other thing I see February fifteenth is that you know if somehow they didn't reach a deal, it wouldn't be day one of a new shutdown. It'd basically be day 36 of the continuing shutdown in terms of media pressure and political pressure from street-level bureaucrats and the way it was dealt with. So I don't see really any way that the congressional Republicans are going to buy into shutting down the government again. And I think they're basically going to tell Trump, we don't have the votes. You need to cut a small deal, cut a big deal, or use your so-called national emergency powers to do Cause, this. Because you have, right now, over the next two weeks, you're going to have this this parade of contractors yeah. who are affected, who are not getting back pay. Right. You're already seeing it. I think there were some field meetings, I don't think they're actual hearings, in the Virginia, in our area, bringing these people on. And um, that is not going to paint a pretty picture moving mm-hmm. forward. Either. And so right now, they're in sort of this period they have now, these three weeks, to try and cut a deal. And they're doing it through a... Two more weeks right now. They're doing it through a conference committee. Um, uh, I'd like to hear what you guys think is going to come out of that committee, but I want to first talk about what a conference committee is a little bit because I think that's kind of a missold um, or mistakenly sold by the president and other people. Um, Conference committee is simply how the House and Senate, one way they can resolve their differences is if the House passed the bill and the Senate passed the bill. They appoint conferees who then kind of negotiate a compromise bill that then goes back to both chambers uh, where they can vote on again because the Constitution requires that both houses pass the same bill. Um, it's not a magic device that makes things happen or makes deals happen. Uh, and it's not something that short circuits the leadership process or the chambers of Congress. It's not like this committee can come up with a deal that they like and then just go force it through the chambers. It's not how it works. Uh, the leaders will be involved in these negotiations. The president will be involved in these negotiations, or at least their opinions will be heard. Um, so I wouldn't expect any magic out of this committee. It's not some grand thing that has special powers in the House. It's kind of a routine process. Uh, but both chambers have to approve of this. The leadership is fully engaged. Um, and you're not going to see sort of these people go rogue and come up with some deal that is not liked by the leaders. Right. And I think what's going to come out of this is, I mean, it's anybody's guess at this point in time. Uh, but there will be more money uh, than there was previously for things that are under the large umbrella of just border security, right? Whether that's Normandy fencing, which is something that I learned today. Yeah, right? fencing. Literally, putting, let's put up some World War II fences in between us and Mexico, mm-hmm. and like that that will su- suffice for the fencing protocol, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I don't know that it's going to be a very big deal, and I don't think it's going to be very palatable to the president at the end of the day, and I don't know whether or not he's going to actually buy into this. I think that's still a wild card. Because um, despite the previous shutdown, he's kind of articulating a vision that this will not pass the sniff test. And, and Pelosi is pretty adamant that like whatever you think is going to pass the sniff test is not coming out of this conference. If sniff includes the wall. <coughs> right. Um, so think about who these people are. So these are all appropriations people. These are not authorizers. These aren't people who are in the weeds thinking about what it is that makes the best policy sense. Um, they think about dollars and cents. That's what appropriators do. They're concerned about, are we getting the most value for the dollar we're spending? And so when the House and Senate originally passed their bills for Homeland Security, the Senate passed a bill that included, I think, $1.6 billion for security. And then the House finally, when it passed out of committee, it was also at 1.6. When they took it to the House floor in December, so well late in the process, 
they upped it to $5.0 billion. And that's when the Republicans are still in control in the House. Now the Republicans are not in control in the House. So you've got a different, the two leaders this time also, you've got different people in place. But the two leaders, both Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, both were appropriators before they got into leadership. So they know how this process works as opposed to somebody like a Paul Ryan or McCarthy who did not understand. And they just felt like they could come in over top of it and do it. These guys are, are, are part of it, but they're doing it through the people who are there. I think Josh is right. I, I think that this is not going to solve any problems. It's going to be very narrow in scope because that's the way appropriators want to do it. They, I think what you're going to find is if the president comes out as rumored right now and on Tuesday he says, I'm going to announce a national emergency for the wall, that actually makes it easier to cut a final deal, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I think they'll end up somewhere around two, two and a half billion dollars, because that's what we do. We cut the difference somewhere in between um, for construction of stuff to help along the border. And that construction can also be technology and other things. Right. I think, you know, the Democrats have most of the leverage here. If they had the leverage before when the shit was going on, they really have it now. I think they're perfectly fine with the president going for this national emergency gambit. I think they like the politics of that. They like the fact that there won't be a wall anytime soon under that. They like what they can hit him over the head with when he does that. And I think the only thing that they want to make sure they do is that they don't look like they are absolutely being obstinate to anything. They'll take some small compromise that gives up something, and then all of a sudden they're acting in good faith, and then they, they feel like they'll come out clean on that. And there's plenty of Democrats who do want We'll be fine with a little bit extra money for border security, maybe even $5 billion they might even go for. Um, well, it's for judges and other things, too, yeah. to try to help the humanitarian exactly. crisis. Get ready to read that. We're putting an extra billion dollars in to deal with the humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. And so they'll be putting in things like more yeah. money for beds along the border for families and things but there's like that. This, there's this sense that people have out there that Democrats don't want border security. And whether or not that's true... They won't mind putting money towards border security. It's not something that's difficult for them to sell to their base. It's not something right. that's difficult for them to sell anywhere. Right. And so I think the real question mark is what it's always been, is what is the president going to accept? Will he accept kind of the face-saving deal that's kind of obvious uh, and what that does to him and his base? Or is he going to go for kind of the big symbolic move to declare this emergency and move this fight over to the courts and, in essence, surrender on the legislative side? Um, I think, you know, you can show you're tough and show you're working as hard as you can if you go for this national emergency, but it also shows that you don't have the juice on the hill to get what you want done. Right. And that's a bad sign going forward for him and the Republicans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so moving forward, now that we've reopened the government, uh, February 15th, um, Congress is organizing itself, right? Committees are starting to get together. Panels are being filled out. New chairmen are getting new gavels. Um, What's been going on on that front, Mark? So what's interesting is is you have, um, of the 20-odd committees in the House of Representatives, only three are being chaired by people who were chairs before. When the Democrats took over, um, Colin Peterson at Ag, Benny Thompson at Homeland Security, and Nydia Velasquez at Small Business were chairs when the Democrats were in control through 2010. But all the rest of these people are new chairs. And so they're trying to figure out how to staff up and how to run a committee. Now, most of them, all except for one, were the ranking member beforehand. Mm -hmm. So they were in a leadership position on the, the matter. But even on the Republican side, now, understand that they're all having to be the minority now, and they're trying to figure that out. We were watching some debate earlier 
this week or last week. And um, let's well, let's rewind okay. real quick before we get to that fun debate stuff because that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah. Um, so this is the, the, the there's been a ton of turnover in both parties over the last eight years since the last the last time that the majorities flipped. Um, you have. Lots and lots of Democrats who have left, lots and lots of new people who have come in. Despite re-election stats, we have an amazing amount of turnover in the Congress, and that is just not emphasized enough. So um, more than 60% of the new Democrat majority are new to the majority period. Right. So 60% of the entire Democratic coalition never been in the majority. has never been in the majority. Right. Um, more than 76%, right? more than 75% of the Republican Party has never been in the minority before. Right? So we have tons and tons of new people. On top of that, there are 94 new members of this Congress, which is almost, we're talking like 20% of the entire House of Representatives. Um, just a fantastic amount of turnover. And one of those big things is, is that getting simply caught up with what's going on in Congress, how to govern right, and how to be in the minority party, is sort of new to everybody. And if anybody's been watching the House floor recently, there have been like a few fantastic <laughs> examples of people being brand new to being in the majority mm -hmm. and being in the minority. Um, Steve Scalise uh, gotten a, well, let's call it a kerfuffle, with, uh, this, with the chairman at one point because... What ended up happening? They were passing the CR. What was it? It was a week from Friday, a week from today. Was two, it a week ago? No, it two was a week ago. from two, two weeks, weeks ago. ago. Yeah. Um, they were they were passing a CR, which was this was during the shutdown, um, and Democrats were sitting there, and nobody asked for a roll call vote. Right. Or, so, or or the chair, or the speaker, the the or the chair, person sitting in the chair, G.K. Butterfield from North Carolina. Did not see any Republican asking for a recorded vote, so he went through and said, "Okay." Then the bill passes. And they waited motion for like, re motion wait. reconsider is laid upon the table. There was, there was like a good thirty second yeah. pause, forty five second pause there, where they're literally just everybody's expecting a roll call vote to be. Asked I mean, this for. is so commonplace. Like right. a, no right. one is entitled to a recorded vote unless they ask for one, and under right. the Constitution, a fifth of the people there want one. But that is so just commonplace. It's natural that someone on the minority side just stands up and says. Mr. Speaker, I asked for a quarter vote, and that's it. And it happens right. on every vote the House right. takes for the most part. But they didn't hear one. None was made. <laughs> like, they didn't hear one. So that's okay, right? In the opinion of the chairs, the ayes have it, right? The motion to, lay on, the motion to uh, recommit is laid on the table. Blah, 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 reconsider is laid on the table. Blah, 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 blah. And on. then all of a sudden, like... Everything like, kind of stopped. Whoa. Like, everybody just sort of stood still trying to figure out, like, what was going on. And everybody, like, nobody left. It was the last vote of the day. But nobody on the floor left. And everybody's sort of expecting one more one and or two they, more and votes. And then they moved on. And well, then, and they did have one more thing. It was the vote, the, the journal. journal. And they approved the journal by voice vote. Right. And then and they then were people done. Started leaving. And then, yeah, they had people leaving. But then... But most of the people were still there thinking, Where, where's the vote right. on the continuing resolution? So Mr. Scalise, minority whip at, the point, at this point in time, gets up there and says, like... Uh, we were we asked for a recorded vote that was not given to us yep. by the chair, and the chair's like, well, I didn't. Did, if anybody was asking for one, I didn't hear one. Right. Um, and so then Steve Scalise starts asking like the chair, like, what motions were available to him to redo Try the vote this. on the CR to undo what right. had happened when when they they, they didn't ask for. And a I, I think vote. it's important to say, well, why did Scalise want a recorded vote? Why do the right. Republicans want a recorded vote? And it's because they want to be able to go home. And say that they voted against this crazy democratic plan that would reopen the government without providing the border yep. wall, without getting them what they wanted. Right. Um, and without that recorded vote, other people are going to be able to say, well, the House voted to 
reopen the government by voice vote, which they will actually say is unanimously, even though it's not. Yeah, it's very, very And they'll say by voice vote, and they'll look bad. So it's understandable why you would want to have the recorded vote for your members who want to be on record against this. And now that you don't have it and people are starting to leave, you're kind of in a box. Right. Um, and, you know, in the House of Representatives, these things can be undone. Right. But they really can only be undone by unanimous consent, meaning no one can object. Everyone right. has to agree to, like, let's do a redo. And uh, as soon as Scalise realized that, he tried to do that, and that's when Steny Hoyer came ripping in. <laughs> so it's, the thing is, like, the chair of the House of Representatives is under no obligation to advise members of the House how to do their job. Right. right. <laughs> that is, how to that procedurally is, work right, on exactly. the and so, what, what can I do to fix this, <laughs> right. Mr. Speaker? How can I, um, I do this? And so at one, really point, Scalise, at one point, Scalise yields time to the chair to explain to him how to do this, which is not a thing. Scalise what? doesn't have any time to <laughs> yield. That's a, that's like when you're managing a bill. Yes, you yield time. You have like 30 minutes and you start doling out like a minute or two minutes to your colleagues. You can't yield time to the chair because you don't control it, right? And, like, right. Well, and again, it's, and it's even not... if you did control it, you couldn't yield to the <laughs> right. chair. And even it's, if you did control it, you can't what, yield it to the chair to do that, and, and they're not going to tell you how to do your job. You keep saying that word, but that's not the right word. In this case, where they were, it was the speaker. So it's, you think of right. the chair of the committee, you can actually yield time to them, but you, but not in a chairman of, uh, chair of the whole, but committee of the whole. But it was the speaker, and he was he asked the speaker, what can you do? And G.K. Butterfield was the acting speaker at the time, <laughs> and, and Butterfield said, well, I'm not aware of anything else. And he said, well, I'll yield you time to go see if you can find <laughs> right. something. It's like, <laughs> yeah. and, and Butterfield's up there looking at him physically yeah. like, yeah. what? So he goes over and looks at the parliamentarian, and the parliamentarian's like, I don't know he what's said, going and, on. And then he said, the chair doesn't advise members on legislative <laughs> <laughs> strategy. I mean, I think the, the bigger picture here, though, is that, you know, you have the minority whip of the House, and I'm not trying to get on Scalise in particular here, because I think this is true of a lot of members, who don't have a good grasp of House procedure once things go off the rails. Mm -hmm. Right. I think uh, most of the members have a basic sense of how the House functions in the way that now most of the time the House floor is very uh, staged in performance and everyone knows exactly what's going to happen. There's not a lot of situations where it's free-flowing and open. Uh, and when you get in those situations, either because you have some open amendment process that's very unusual now, or because things go off the rails, people are kind of lost at their options of what to do. Mm -hmm. And it was it was fascinating also at one point, Scalise was saying, I asked you now to consent to do this. Then you hear on mic, uh, Majority Leader Hoyer going, I object. Does anybody know what's going on <laughs> yeah. here? I don't know what's going on here. I don't but know I what's object. going on, but I object. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and ultimately they found, uh, they went, you know, they re the, the, then the speaker did what the speaker can do. Which was he recessed, and, and, and Majority Leader Hoyer said, does the Speaker have the authority to recess the House? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Butterfield goes, the Speaker, I, I recess, the, according to some rule, I recess the oh, House call, call the chair, yeah. uh, to the call of the chair, meaning we'll come back at some other time. And they did, and they came back, and they found a way to And, you know, it. and to, to, to Hoyer's credit, two things are going on here. One is Hoyer's protecting his members. Hoyer's objecting to these, you know, redos because some of his members have left now, and right. he doesn't and want to take another vote that, A, the vote might fail all of a sudden, and, B, he wants to give them an opportunity to vote if the Republicans do the vote. But also, to his credit, he's not trying to do this just to be a pain in the ass. He goes and they work out a deal with Scalise where they can have this redo vote the following week when everyone comes back right. without having to wreck things up. And, and, they, and I think everyone did quite well in this circumstance. It's one of those situations where, uh, based on what you knew about politics right now, you might say, well, this is going to be out of your throats and play hardball, but they didn't. They worked it out, and they came to a compromise where they were going to redo the vote, but not until they came back the next week, and Scalise was very appreciative of that, and Hoyer was very kind of... And very appreciative uh, to the speaker, to, yeah. to Mr. Butterfield, to say, hey, I know yeah. that you didn't miss it, I know you didn't do it on purpose, which was great. Mm -hmm. So everybody played their roles appropriately by the end of the day. But part of that's because 
Hoyer's been around for a long time. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so he knew, okay, let's just get off the floor and let's go solve this. Right. Which is how most of the things in Congress do happen. Right. Right? It, you don't see solutions on the floor. Right. Very they, often. They, they recess, they come back, uh, Hoyer asks unanimous consent for the agreed upon deal, and all of a sudden, there you are. Yeah. Right? We're back open. But that's just, that's just indicative of the type of new roles that we're coming to. And to Mark's point, like, we have tons of brand new chairmen uh, in the House of Representatives, right? Um, all of the exclusive committees have brand new chairs. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the other committees have brand new chairs. Only three don't. So we have all of these staffs that are now doubling, right? Right. And so they've never had to hire people before, right? They don't. They and have to be any... clear, staffs are doubling because in the House of Representatives, the yes. majority controls two thirds of the staff <laughs> of the committee, and the minority one third. So when you go from the minority to the majority, you go from one third to two thirds. So you you have to double up your staff. And vice versa, when yeah. you go from the majority to minority, you Cut fire half, half yeah. of the people there, which and is a pretty brutal process. There are a couple <laughs> of committees where. People can move from one party to the other. Mm-hmm. Armed services, appropriations, where few can make that move or a handful because they're more interested in the, the subject matter expertise that people have. Right. Most of the other ones, especially in something like judiciary where it's, it's much more political right. or natural yeah. resources, right. um, you are hiring all brand new people. And also remember right now, the Democrats are trying to hire a whole lot of folks who have experience investigations and oversight. Mm-hmm. And what's the problem is, is all 20 committees, or at least 19 of them, maybe not appropriations, but all 19 of the other major committee or the standing committees are hiring oversight people, and there are just not that many around. Um, and so while there is this call, hue and cry, for the Democrats to really start investigate what's going on, it's going to take time because they just don't have the bodies to do it. What's interesting is the number one place that you go to find these people? The media. Because hmm. it's investigative reporters who are actually some of the best people for trying to do this. And because of how much we have been rolling back the amount of money that is being spent on print and radio and TV media. Oh, Those people don't exist yeah. as much yeah. as they used to. Right. Yeah, it's, it's going to be amazing to watch, and I think it's going to be interesting to watch how these new chairmen and chairwomen uh, actively negotiate their caucus in the, in the politics of their committee. Because that's a, it's, a, it's a brand new feature. When you're no longer just the ranking member and leading the opposition, it's very, very different to craft a coalition, uh, negotiate a bill through the procedural hurdles of committee, negotiate a bill through the procedural hurdles at the floor level, which maybe you have not ever had to negotiate before because right. you have never tried to craft a bill before. Right? You've never tried to get it off the floor. And so negotiating with the leadership becomes a brand new proposition in, in ways that you haven't understood Right, because you have to get which, through your caucus first. Right, which amendments to include and which not to include are going to be brand new. Your negotiations with the Rules Committee as you're going through and trying to craft an pr- appropriate rule for whatever bill you're trying to pass is going to be brand new to you. So there are tons of different things. And that's, that's not including like the politics of a markup, which are extraordinarily free-wielding yeah. um, and can be can put new chairmen very off-balance if you're not expecting um, you know the haymakers that may be coming at you from the left and from your own side even. Right. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to watch these new the gavels come in and, and negotiate these politics. And I wouldn't be surprised if things are a little bit slower on the legislative side than than many anticipate. Well, you know, another thing that... And they're expecting almost right. no movement and to so, be right. you know, yeah. One thing that has happened for sure is that the shutdown uh, and a couple other features have slowed down the legislative calendar in the House uh, as we got caught up in this debate. The other thing that slowed it down is the president's budget is due to be here oh, allegedly, let's see. That allegedly would be on next Tuesday. week. Yeah. And that's not going to happen. The State of the Union address is now... 
a little bit later than it normally would be by a week. And so the entire, you know, I, I like to think of the House as, I mean, this is probably an appropriate view, as running on sort of the budget appropriation cycle as the main thing that underlies the calendar in the House. And Normally. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, you know, a, a late budget isn't the end of the world from the president. Whenever The first year of any presidency always has a budget that doesn't arrive until March, April, sometimes May. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it certainly seems a case that the shutdown knocked back sort of some of the ramp up uh, of the of the House schedule and the Senate schedule. And also it looks like the Trump administration is going to be late in their budget. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. By, I mean, by a, a fair amount. By a month at least would be my guess at this point. But again, this this oversight thing, I want to talk about one committee yeah. in particular, which I think is interesting, the Oversight and Reform Committee. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Um, yeah, feel free to go. I mean, you've got uh, Elijah Cummings, who's going to be chairing it, um, and you've got Jim Jordan, who's going to be the new ranking member. I yeah. mean, go to it. And then you also have you know some freshmen who have been put on it mm-hmm. on the Democratic side who are probably looking to be bomb throwers. Um, or at least get their face in. And the thing about uh, OGR, or I guess it's not called that anymore, nah, but I'm going to skip calling no it OGR, anymore. Oversight Government Forum, is that OGR is a place with a wide berth of jurisdiction uh, to do sort of oversight and investigatory types of work. And it has traditionally been a place that has featured uh, some of the most uh, partisan politics with some of the highest animosity. Right. Because it can be. Because, I mean, this is the place where you, you have the... Your, your full reason for functioning is to look at whatever is happening anywhere inside the government, take a look at it, try to see if there are places where there can be fixes, try to make sure that everything is working accordingly. And we've got on the Democratic side some of our more liberal members, yep. um, especially a lot of new members. Yep. Um, AOC, AOC <laughs> Presley, and Tlaib are all freshmen on it. Right. And you also have Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Jackie Speer. These are not people... Uh, the, these are not shy folks away in the middle of the fight, caucus. Right? And then on the Republican side, you have some of the folks who are by far the most conservative, right? Number one, you've got Jim Jordan, who's now the ranking member, who's from the kind of that Freedom Caucus side. Um, you uh, had, I think, Mark Meadows is on this committee as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got a couple of other guys on the Republican side who are just kind of poke everybody in the eye with Justin Amash and Thomas Massey. I mean, these are, and then Paul Gosar is another one of these Republicans who's, Likes who's not who's not afraid to to mix it up. So you're going to see some very interesting interplay. Um, yeah. And on by both interesting sides. interplay, you mean like screaming. Yeah, you could have a little bit of that. Although I think I think Cummings will do his best. I mean, he think he tried to work very hard with Gowdy, um, with Gowdy and with um, um, the guy from Utah um, who was there beforehand. Um, who left? Jason Chaffetz. Um, to to try to set up a a committee between the sides so that they would work together. One of the things that the Democrats are doing, which I think is important, which is they've said this across the the way, and I've talked about this some in the past. They are not going to issue subpoenas without giving notice to the Republicans beforehand. Mm-hmm. That was not something that was done in the last couple of Congresses. Republicans issued. They had at least five committees where they could issue subpoenas without letting the minority know about it. The Democrats have decided to take a different tact here. They've decided to always let the minority know before they issue a subpoena that they're going to issue a subpoena. Um, So that's kind of, that should hopefully turn the temperature down a little bit. I'm going to stick by my prediction that it's going to be the Jersey Shore of Congressional Committee. So it's just going to be outright warfare the entire time. 
And, like, alerting them to a subpoena is probably going to mean, in some instances, like, hey, we've sent a subpoena. Hey, Jim, we're going to send, guess, guess gonna send one we're in going an to hour. And two, <laughs> and they're they're supposed to give them two days' notice. Or 30, 30 two minutes. Days. Right? Yeah. Two days' notice. Supposed to give them two days' notice. That's exactly but, right. I mean, and, and uh, another... Uh, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. But, I but I think go on tangent there. I know. But the, I think that I think that will... I mean, obviously, it's not going to stop because, I mean, what's Jordan going to say? No, I don't think you should issue that subpoena, right? That's a yes. But and that's not going to stop them. But at least having the notice... There, there sometimes can be discussions, and it wouldn't surprise me if Democrats either pull back the subpoenas or the Republicans are willing to work with the Democrats to try to get the administration to do something so that the subpoena isn't actually offered. Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be very much the Pelosi strategy. Uh, she, I don't think, is going to want her major committees of investigatory frost, be it judiciary, intelligence, OGR, just run- financial services yeah. might be the first one to offer exactly one. and running amok just everywhere flying subpoenas all around one because that can end up turning into a negative for you but second is like you want to manage your message yep. yeah. and they want to focus on one thing or the other and obviously corralling committee chairs is not the easiest thing in the world but I think Pelosi probably has a pretty good lockdown on making sure that people stay in their lane and don't sort of interfere with an overall project that she's working on here in terms of oversight. I think that's absolutely true because the amount of stuff that they could go after this administration for would take a full calendar year, right? It's like you simply don't have enough calendar days, right, and and literal legislative days in order to go after all the stuff that you could go after. So profiling the stuff that you do, managing oversights, Mm -hmm. uh, oversight responsibility, uh, in addition to like farming out the appropriate jurisdictional battles that are un- inevitably going to pop up whenever you talk about this stuff. What does oversight take versus what does judiciary take which is what, versus what does natural resources take? What, is it interior again? Yeah. Okay. okay but uh, no, no, it's still natural resources. It's still natural resources. Okay. Right. Um, versus what education labor is going to take versus mm-hmm. what financial service. I mean, it, there's a ton of jurisdictional mess going on there and Matt's exactly right you're going to want to manage that not only in terms of like keeping committees within their own bailiwicks but also spreading that message out in an effective manner that you think is going to maximize um, and and we're already starting to see chairs try to talk to each other about working together on some of these things one of the places that's a little interesting that I think you're going to see the Democratic Caucus is is starting to show some fractures on um, is the Ways and Means Committee and Mm. what are they uh, Richard Neal from Massachusetts is the chair, and he's taking a go-slow approach to obtaining President Trump's tax return. And you're already starting to see that there's some strain there. Now, his point of view is, hey, let's build a public case for it. I mean, he's watching what the uh, special counsel's doing with Robert Mueller, trying to build a case for everything before he moves forward. And I think he's thinking the same thing. Let me build a case for why we should grab this tax return. Let's not just grab it willy-nilly. And they actually are holding their first hearing. Uh, next week to talk something about it. So that that's one to keep your eye on where the pressure is there. I mean, I, I do think that you're going to see a lot of legislation on the floor in the House and perhaps in the Senate of stuff that's messaging bills. And you're going to see some small stuff get done. And there's going to be some big moments where things have to get done. The debt limit, the appropriations next year, the BCA. But really, I think what you're going to see is two chambers largely operating on different substantive planes. Right. With the Senate confirming judges, and the House conducting oversight of the executive branch. And I think that's going to be the story of the 116th Congress, is that these two chambers are going to be operating parallel in places where they have unilateral control and ability to do substantive things. 
And it, what the other thing the Senate's really going to have to spend time on is, you know, let's hire up for the administration. What are we up to? Six acting people oh, crazy. In, in the, the secretariat right it's now? not including like the crazy. 300 vacancies. Right. right. Or this is just talking about the top. That doesn't include, yeah, and that doesn't even include like Wilbur Ross on his way out. Right. right? right. Well, in fact, yeah. Mulvaney's acting chief of staff, right? I mean, how many jobs does he have at this point? He's down to two, right? He gave up. <laughs> right, but they're talking about sending over to commerce. Well, one of the things that I think has been underplayed a little bit is just how much uh, Mitch McConnell will be on defense this year. Yeah. Um, and the, what I mean is that I don't see this as kind of like your typical just messaging Senate, right, where you're going to be putting up a bunch of cloture votes that are going to fail, a la like Harry Reid in 2013 and 14. Huh. Um, How'd that I, work for him? Yeah, well, not great. That's okay. um, he just confirmed judges, and it didn't go. They lost. Yeah, that um, but uh, I don't think it's going to be that type of Senate. Some, because there's much more fracture within that set of majority. And this president is causing a lot of strain on the Republican coalition, both in the House and in the Senate, between what you would call like presidential Republicans and sort of establishment Republicans. Um, and whether it's the votes on the Middle East, right? The inability yeah. to stop the Yemen vote, the inability to stop the, uh, the, the prison reform bill, vote. right? Afghanistan and Syria is coming up now. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw this in the shutdown where Mitch McConnell was only able to hold the flank for so long. And then he's literally calling the president saying like, we're, we're reaching a point where I can't stop this anymore. Right. Um, he's going to be playing not just defense in terms of what the House is passing, but defense in terms of his own chamber and his ability to stop action from happening yeah. within his own caucus and within the, the, the Senate. Writ and all in the guise of his own re-election uh, up in the air. For That's right, he's in cycle, now. isn't he? And that doesn't, uh, doesn't mean he's not going to be re-elected, but it's something he has to consider, both the primary challenge... Uh, and in theory, a general election challenge. Right. right. Yeah. And, he's, and he's stuck from both sides, right? Right. He can't oppose Trump too much or he's afraid of a primary challenge. And he can't go along with him too much because he's afraid that somebody like a McGrath will come out um, from a kind of centrist Democratic position and knock him off on the Democratic side. So he, he will be in a bit of a box. It would be amazing to see Kentucky in play. Like from, from like that's 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 still out there. Even though he has like what eleven percent approval, it didn't stop him from getting like reelected last time. <laughs> that's not eleven um, percent in Kentucky. Though. That's right. That's exactly right. Everybody overlooks that. But still, um, it's it's going to be a very interesting Senate to watch because he has much fewer procedural authority that the Speaker does. Right. right. You can't just outright block right. stuff the way that Nancy Pelosi can. Um, Nancy Pelosi has fractures in her caucus. It, that thing doesn't get a vote for the most part. Um, Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, has to deal with people who can just walk onto the floor and offer whatever motion they want. And all of a sudden, we're spending a week talking about whatever motion somebody else made. Um, so that's going to be very interesting to watch because McConnell is a very, very good legislative strategist. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how he plays defense with the Senate chamber to a large degree. Because uh, I don't think that they're going to be doing much in the positive way. This right. is mostly just how do I block this thing right. that's, that's coming down the pike. But, uh, yep. <laughs> All right, well, we've reached the 37-minute uh, mark of Congress Two Beers In, and everyone knows after 37 minutes, almost no one's <laughs> left listening to a podcast. So we'll do our wrap-ups. Josh, do you have anything to say? Yeah, I do. So there was an interesting piece this today, this morning, uh, in Politico about uh, whether Democrats would nuke the filibuster uh, should they get the majority in the Senate, and should there be a Democratic president, and should they hold on to the House. And it's enough of an issue, I guess, that presidential candidates are taking uh, stances on this, whether that be Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or uh, Kamala Harris, um, they're they're making stances about whether the legislative filibuster should exist or should not exist. Um, and one of the first things that popped in my head was, what are the things that they would want to prioritize in 2020? What are the big issues that are uniting Democrats? Um, and what would be the challenges that they face in order to get rid of the filibuster? Um, 
And when you break it down, like a lot of the things that are uh, highlighting the Democratic debate right now are stuff that you really don't need to get rid of the filibuster for, right? Whether that's Medicare for all or whether that's increasing taxes on the rich um, or whether that's something that has to do with housing. I mean, a lot of this stuff can be put through under reconciliation. Some climate change legislation could be put through under reconciliation. Um, so, for example, like the carbon tax, for example, would be something that could probably be shoved into a reconciliation bill, which is not filibusterable. So a lot, to a large degree, a lot of the stuff that Democrats could do uh, could be done through a normal budget cycle. Um, so there's no real need to, to blow up the Senate in right. order to uh, get large accomplishments done. So the remaining question is, well, what stuff can't be put in reconciliation that would eventually need somebody to blow up the filibuster for. Um, banking regulation is something that's out there that's kind of off the table with Chuck Schumer. Uh, clim other climate change uh, stuff uh, that may be coming in, whether it's energy regulations or whatnot, um, that's going to face some pretty stiff opposition from a large chunk of Democrats, whether that's Joe Manchin, John Tester, uh, Mr. Bennett, the U uh, Udall from uh, the, North, uh, the from New Mexico, New Mexico folks, Heinrich. Um, so it's not at all clear that this thing is actually going to blow up, other than the voting rights. I, I would add, yeah, I would add that there's, you know, one dangerous aspect to this, too, is that what I see a lot of people clamoring for to do with this stuff is the stuff that's escalating the hardball. Why do we need to blow up the filibuster? Yeah. So that we can bring Puerto Rico and D.C. into the union and give ourselves more Senate seats. So we can pack the Supreme Court to reverse what McConnell did. And in my mind, those are maybe noble goals to bring new states in the union, but this is a bad use of breaking a norm just so that you can escalate kind of the constitutional hardball. Right. It kind of undermines the whole small state bias yes. thing. <laughs> We're just like, we're just going out there. But, Go um, ahead and tell what you're drinking too. Oh, uh, okay. Just random side. Uh, I'm drinking no, at the Cigar end of your City time. from, uh, from Highlight, or Highlight from Cigar City, which is a fantastic beer. Okay. So um, for me, um, first of all, what I'm drinking, I'm drinking a Tank 7 Farmhouse Ale that was nicely bought by Josh for me because he guessed too many Democrats. I lost a right? bet. Lost that yeah, bet. now he's finally paid it off. I had it totally locked down. It wasn't nice. He was paying off a debt, yo. Beginning of, beginning of September, I had that bet locked down. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, and, it was then, and then what, what was the problem? Yeah. Kevin on. There you go. Mobilized the base. He didn't price in reality. So he didn't price in reality. So here's the other thing I want to talk about the rise in the power of women in Congress right now, and I want to do it in one place, which is the Appropriations Committee. When I first came to town in 1989, there were three women on the Appropriations Committee. Josh, two, how great were you in 1989? Don't even start with me. There were two in the... Third, Thanks. Third great, great, great. One of my multiplication tables. Give me my freaking cane on the way out. So two on the Democratic side and one on the Republican side um, out of a committee that was... Uh, 51 people. So three out of uh, 51 were female. On the Democratic side of the 30 Democrats who are in the Appropriations Committee right now, 16 are women. So we have a majority of women on the Democratic side. Now on the Republican side, it's three out of their 23. So it's still fairly low on the Republican side. But I think that this will, I think that this will change the way that Democrats put together their appropriations bills moving forward, how they try to negotiate things, where their priorities lie. Um, I know that it, gender doesn't make the total difference, but I do think it will at least change some of the discussions that are occurring and what people emphasize. Uh, so I am drinking, a, also like Mark, a Tank 7 Farmhouse Ale. I also tried a cider that had gone bad. And prior <laughs> to that, I was mocked very uh, harshly by Josh for yeah. drinking a left. 
uh, which I think is a wonderful beer. It's, a, it's fine. Yeah, that's it's not fine. what you said when I opened it. Yeah, well. Uh, so anyway, I, the thing I want to talk about was that um, we've talked a lot about who's going to control kind of the agenda in Congress. And uh, one thing that is certainly true is that as we go forward through this year, the agenda in Congress is going to start to be stolen by the presidential candidates. Uh, and that whatever the president wants to put on the agenda, or whatever the leaders of Congress want to put on the agenda, there's going to be a handful of people in the Democratic Party who have unilateral ability to put different things on the agenda. Uh, and they will not be aiming those things at trying to pass specific bills now in Congress. They'll be aiming those as national messages as they try to win primary campaigns. Josh talked a little bit about this with the, with the filibuster reform, uh, but there's a whole host of issues where a lot of Democrats may be trying to outflank each other to the left, maybe trying to drive different lanes. But at any rate, a lot of the oxygen in Washington and in the national media is going to be sucked up by looking at their opinions as opposed to, say, what's going on with committee chairs or freshmen in the house. And, like, if we could just go off on this tangent for a little bit, one of the things that amazes me is that... We've got we, plenty of tape on the reel. Yeah, tons, tons of tape, tons of time. Don't worry about it. All right, so one of the things that amazes me is how long our electoral cycles have gotten. Oh, my God. Um, it, and this is a bit nuts because uh, the common wisdom today among people on the Hill is that we have seven months to do something, and then August recess hits, and then it's just essentially a presidential calendar, which is bonkers, right? That's right. absolutely nuts when you For think next, about it. What, historically. 20 months. Right. Mm -hmm. This is not normal under historical standards, right? The Congress didn't shut down like after five or six or seven months of activity. Um, and we were thinking back in uh, a little while ago here in the office, just of some of the major pieces of legislation that had passed in the second year of a presidential calendar, right? Or the second year of an mm -hmm. election calendar. Uh, one of the big ones, of course, is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? That ended up coming through the judiciary. That was uh, a presidential year, no less. Right, yeah, presidential, right. The president who is up for re-election is pushing this bill through the Congress. That bill comes out of judiciary in October. It is, being, it is sitting in the Rules Committee in December. Uh, they get a rule in January, and then it passes in July of 64, right? And the president is up for re-election a few months later. I mean, this is just phenomenal how long the uh, the, the uh, electoral calendar has gotten and how much that's infringing on our ability to actually get something done. Uh, one of the great pieces that I read recently uh, was in the Monkey Cage. Uh, it was by, with a professor from, uh, I believe it's UNC, named Nick Carnes, who's written, written a, a really, really good research on uh, what it's like for working class candidates and, and the type of barriers that they face into elected office. One of the things that he talks about is that it's not necessarily like the campaign finance aspect of it. It's literally like being able to miss your job to go and campaign for several months. Right. And the longer that election uh, cycles and election calendars go, the more of a burden it is on somebody from the working class to take off work, to find childcare, to pay for expenses when you are not, when you literally are taking on a second job to run for office. Um, and it seems to me like this is one of those barriers to office for lots of economic classes um, that we really don't take into account for because it's, it's just the extension of an electoral calendar that um, has largely been unseen, right, to a large degree. We're doing less governing and more elect electing, um, which is affecting who can run for office. I'm going with a second rant here because I forgot about one. Yeah, thing. let's do it. And it's not Howard Schultz because we're not talking about him. Oh, no, no we're no not. No coffee. No, we're uh, not. I, I want to do my second rant on uh, making Election Day a federal holiday, mm -hmm. which is a popular idea among a lot of people right now. Mitch McConnell poo-pooed it. I don't think it's a bad idea. I just don't think it's going to solve any of the problems people think it's going to solve. It's a nice symbolic gesture, but if you look at any federal holiday, plenty of people still have to work, particularly the lower level ones like Columbus Day. Okay, There's always going to be lots of people right. working. Unless the states adopt it, unless private sector people adopt it, most people are still going to be working. And even if you do make it sort of a widely known federal holiday like Memorial Day, the people who aren't going to have work off are the people who are poor, 
working retail jobs, service industry jobs. And if you really want to help more people vote, instead of just letting a little slice of people have an easier time voting, you want to expand the opportunity to vote, making longer hours to vote, making early voting more early easier. Voting. This is a nice symbolic Throw it thing. on a weekend. I'm all for federal holidays, but I don't think this is going to have much effect whether you do it or not. Right, and that package, that, that voting rights package is going to be really interesting because it includes a lot of stuff that is not mainstream. For example, like public financing, uh, a yeah. lot of other stuff in there. It's a, it's, a, it's a big bill. If you yeah. haven't looked at it, it's a big bill they've been working on for decades. So last closing thing, when are you getting published? Oh, uh, tomorrow. We've got, got an op-ed. we got an op-ed. We're coming Times. out in the Times tomorrow. That's right. Agenda setting why the president can't do it in Congress. <laughs> it's going to be great. Read it. It's 850 good. words. That's all I'll give you. It's not a big space. But but so. each one is lovingly chosen. <laughs> um, so with that, yes. thank you very much for listening. All right. This has been Congress Two Beers In. See you next time. Bye.